Hello and welcome to Unlocking Your Potential with Ask Europe. It's a different voice this time. It's myself, Martin Theobald. There is no Laura Keane, but I'm joined by our Managing Director of Ask Europe, Alex Speed. How are you, Alex? Hello, good. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. The days are bright and sunny and I'm out on my bike and I'm getting all those endorphins that you... You need to keep you happy, and it's nice. Fabulous. Getting some sport in, right? Yeah, so it's uh, our, our usual kind of format of Laura coming and talking with people of interest around leadership. Um, we thought we'd also kind of plug some of those gaps while Laura's out doing what she does, which is designing fabulous courses and delivering fabulous courses, um, by you and I picking up topics. And... The first topic which unites us and divides us equally um, is sport. And so we thought we'd start where we're comfortable. Um, so looking at leadership in sport, how leadership uh, has an impact, how leadership has an effect, different styles of leadership. Um, so sport is something that you and I are both quite passionate about. Well, it, it certainly seems to occupy vast amounts of our conversational time in the office, yeah. for good or for bad. Yeah, so we're just recording those conversations that we have in the office. Pretty much that's the order of today. Get download our random thoughts and uh, and see how the uh, see how the audience agrees or disagrees with what we think. Yeah, and we do love hearing people's feedback to these things. Now, I am going to heavily caveat this from the outset with you and I, Alex, are both big football fans and more casual fans of other sports. So we yeah. will make reference to other things, but football will dominate the conversation, I suspect, for the next half hour or so. Um, and again, to caveat it, my allegiance sits with Tottenham Hotspurs, Ooh. yours with Arsenal. So <laughs> could be some interesting conversations. Um, I wanted to kick it off with, why is leadership in sport so important? And I know that's almost an obvious conversational point and you look at any successful team over time and there are people you would pick out as the leaders but why is it that those successful teams have obvious leaders yeah well I think you've already you've already caveated it that that there are so many parallels between sport and the business world so we'll make no apologies for that and and there are the crossovers are quite obvious um the most successful teams throughout history in any sport will always have a strong leader. When you think of the team, it's usually synonymous with not only the team, but their leader. We can look um, at, the, at, the, at the league that's just gone with Manchester City, and you know, they have themselves uh, Pep Guardiola, who's probably you know, the finest coach of his generation, and similarly in football over the years. Um, you know, leaders offer drive and give purpose and all teams need to have clarity of purpose. You know, the task has to be understood by the players and create that positive relationship between the leader of the team, the coach, the manager, and then the players that have to perform. Who are the ones that stand out to you? Now, in my mind, I go back to sort of mid-2000s football and yeah. I look at that sort of cohort of players that were Vieira, Gerrard, Roy Keane... Uh, Frank Lampard, four different teams, all relatively successful in their own means, um, yeah. European-wise and sort of domestically. Yeah. Um, and what I find interesting, we're going to come on to this point about expert to leader later on, mm. um, but who are your ones that you kind of think of immediately? Yeah, well, I go back a, a little bit longer than you, and, and we've already said, you know, we, we, we won't focus 
solely on football but unfortunately for you and I that is where our massive passion lies so my first analogy is going to be a football one and it has to be Arsene Wenger not because of what he did uh, at my team um, and I will talk endlessly about my team because they are the greatest team in the world but he um, it's half the people turn uh, off yeah, absolutely <laughs> but yeah, yeah absolutely revolutionized football and this is the thing that a lot of people, particularly of younger generations, perhaps aren't aware of. He didn't just create um, a remarkable football side. He changed the shape of, 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 of English football and, and possibly other, other areas. We were talking here about nutrition, fitness levels, changing the way that footballers approach um, their professionalism. We had a very drinking culture back in those days. We're talking mid-90s. 96 was when, when he joined Arsenal. Very heavy drinking culture. And many of the professionals at that time have, have attributed to their careers being extended by maybe three or four years longer than they would have expected because of the new ways of thinking that he brought. And it brought instant success because we'd never seen it before. And of course, then other, other teams understood what was happening and they in turn implemented good nutritional uh, um, regimes uh, and they caught up. And perhaps part of the criticism is in the last sort of, 10 years of his tenure, he didn't then have the ability to think, well, what's next? And you know, the modern coaches like Pep Guardiola have got new ideas and that's why they're successful. But ultimately, they'll get caught up. So... Um, yeah, Arsene Wenger always springs to mind. And speaking of that era of your club, I've I've been lucky enough to spend some time around Tony Adams. You in have, the past. yeah, yeah. Um, he tells a really interesting story. Now, to bring this back to some of the theory side of leadership, yeah. um, and the more that I've learned about it since being at Ask Europe, the more I sort of apply my learning to stories I hear, um, and the the kind of Lencioni. Uh, five dysfunctions <laughs> so looking at that trust that conflict element he tells a really interesting story about Dennis Bergkamp and they were on their way up to Middlesbrough and Bergkamp had recently joined uh, was a superstar name and everybody was so respectful of him but he wasn't apparently and I don't know the ins and outs but performing away from home at these smaller grounds at the time some deemed smaller grounds no offence to anybody from Middlesbrough um, and he went up to Bergkamp on the coach on the way up there, sort of stood over him and said to him, you have to perform today. You have to put it in today. You have to work hard today. And that conflict element that he was confident enough with the trust of the team and the respect that he'd got as a leader Mm. to call out the most high-profile player at the time Mm. and be able to have that conversation with him, which I thought was a really interesting um, dynamic to have. Yeah, especially as you know, sort of that almost fearfulness, I guess, of somebody who's cost millions and millions of pounds. But Tony was the person that was sort of respected enough to be able to bring that that conflict to the table. Yeah, I think seeing there, of course, is 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 those leadership traits in in play. You know, leadership's a, a it's a behavioural process, isn't it? It's it's there to influence individuals and groups towards those set goals. And a captain has that dual role of being that, that voice of the manager. And perhaps you know, Tony Adams, by that time, he would have had you know, 60 plus caps for England and he was captaining Arsenal from 19. So he's obviously got that confidence and longevity to understand the role that he plays. And perhaps there's a role for him as a leader, as a captain, 
to approach that situation in a way that the manager perhaps would not because managers have a duality purpose where you know they've got to think about the well-being of a player as well as the performance on the pitch so I think we're seeing there the role of a great captain um, which for me is is when I was thinking about the leaders um, I immediately went from Arsene Wenger straight into Tony Adams because at that time he also personified the leadership on the pitch. He was by no means the best player at that time at Arsenal or, or throughout history, but he's quite clearly the greatest captain that the side's ever had. Um, and he has a statue outside the ground which cap, you know, encapsulates that. And I think that shows that you don't need to be the most talented person to be a leader. There are other attributes and traits at play. And that sort of brings us on to I mean, something that I'd kind of scribbled down in advance, the captain versus leader mm. part. And you, you talk there about being the voice on the pitch and the duality of being a manager, being that you have to um, balance the welfare of the people with the success that comes you know, on a rugby, football, boxing ring, whatever it may be. Um, but in a team sport, you need that leader as a manager and leader as a captain having that voice. I think you sort of you pair these things off. So Julier, Gerard, Wenger, Vieira, yeah. Wenger, Adams, yeah. Ferguson, Keane, all these sort of people go hand in hand. So how do you think that captain role is selected by a um, by a manager? So for instance, if I take England and Tottenham, Harry Kane is the England captain, but not the Tottenham captain, where we have Hugo Lloris. And various managers, unfortunately, over time have, uh, have passed through and kept that same dynamic, which must be a tempting thing to say, take it away from Lloris and give it to Harry Kane, and that will go down well with everybody, but none of them have. So what do you think they're looking for when they select that leader on the pitch mm. and in the dressing room and those moments they're not around to witness yeah. everything? Yeah. I mean, you're describing there, interestingly, the, the, the managers and captains from, from a football experience that resonate with you. And you, you've listed their great captains. And we, we instinctively understand what it is that they're bringing. But interestingly, you haven't listed players like... Diego Maradona, for example, possibly the finest player to ever play, but he was always the captain. We don't remember him as a captain. No. We don't remember Lionel Messi as a captain, because I would argue they probably don't show those traits that you would look for that are synonymous with leadership. What are those things? Well, we've said that the, the manager, that sorry, the, the captain is is your 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 manager's conduit on the pitch could be on the on the road you know if it's cycling teams you know they're they're not they're not privy to have their manager riding a bike alongside them so they would always have a road captain who's calling the shots and looking at strategy um i think one of the things they have to do is lead by example um but it's a flawed approach to make your most talented person your captain. And of course, we see that in the workplace, don't we? Yes. We, we, see, we see that we promote people into positions of leadership, usually because they're technical expertise. And that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But we're not considering that they're leading through their technical ability. But do they actually have the attributes that are necessary to be a leader? And that's why one of our flagship programs is our expert to leader program, which then seeks to upskill those technical experts who will have authority, but give them the additional skills they need to lead people. Because it's not about the position you hold in leadership, it's about how you conduct yourself. So um, more of an emphasis on relationships, empathy and listening, uh, being able to delegate tasks, great communication skills, 
influencing and of course then taking that responsibility of, of others and I think those are the traits that we see in captains and I'd always argue that is your star player whose emphasis is on the brilliance of winning the game is their focus on the well-being of the team you need to move over there and hey guys come on let's really get behind you know let's focus on what we're doing uh, possibly not which is why the best player doesn't necessarily make the best captain which is interesting because we're talking about multi-billion pound industries and mm. the amount of wealth that is at stake individually and collectively. <laughs> Have you ever heard of stories where clubs pick a captain and then would actually put them through something like an expert to lead a course? Because I never have. No. Um, and actually to embed those traits into somebody could be hugely beneficial. Mm. But instead, they're given an armband, not training. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's a fascinating question. I mean, the, the straight answer is I don't know, and I've not heard of that. I'd be very surprised in the modern world if any professional sports team is not investing their people in that way. We see uh, young footballers, and again, I have to apologise that we're focusing so heavily on football, but uh, we see young footballers, we know how much media training they now have, and we see that playing out. We see 18-, 19-year-olds, you know, the England stars, Jude Bellingham, Pakaya Saka, they're very polished in front of the camera, and that doesn't happen by chance because there's an expectation of conducting themselves and representing their club and country. So I think it'd be unlikely that there's not leadership uh, skills being implemented. I don't know what they are, and it's a fascinating question, and it'd be really interesting to either find out or explore that ourselves. Yeah, we need to explore that yeah. somewhere. Um, to take it out of the lens of football shortly, mm. um, not for too long because, <laughs> frankly, I'll get lost. Um, one of the sort of leadership and, I suppose, going back to that, pairing things up, but it's a question about how many are the right number of leaders within an environment. So if I take it back to the uh, Rugby World Cup 2003, Clive Woodward, um, Sir Clive Woodward, being the coach of the England team, but you think of the people that... So when you see those pictures of the um, the trophy being lifted and you look at the faces that are in there, you've got Martin Johnson, Lawrence Delalio, Johnny Wilkinson, three people that immediately, in my mind, were all leading different areas of that. Now, two of them are in the pack, in mm. Delalio and Johnson, and then you've got Johnny Wilkinson out in the backs doing his kick in and you know being incredibly successful. What's the right number of leaders and sort of how does that dynamic work if you end up with too many of them? Mm. There's 15 on a pitch. <laughs> At that point, sort of 20% of them we would probably consider to be leaders. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we may, I, I'm sure we'll come back to Clive Woodward. We'll talk a bit about um, different leadership styles because he famously had a very democratic style of leadership, which is, which is uncommon, um, but, but certainly exists. So he would regularly involve his senior players in decisions. I think the answer to the question is, is can you have too many leaders? Mm. I, mean, I mean, really, can you? I would say you probably can't, but the issue maybe more lies in do those leaders have a shared uh, vision? Is there a lack of understanding? And I think what we can often see in the workplace is that there are leaders with labels, but what you're actually doing is creating too many managers or even bosses, to coin the more Americanized phrases. Therein lies the problem. 
um, you start to lose direction. You start to lose that shared focus, which is what we look to leaders to give. So I don't think you can have too many leaders, providing that they're all sharing the vision, they're all on the same page and understand the core purpose, which is what you've just described with the England rugby setup. There was absolutely shared vision uh, and focus on what the goal was to win the trophy. Yeah, and in my mind, whether it's right or wrong, I don't know, but they all sort of outside of the sporting world would get along very well and sort of, I'd imagine their personalities blended particularly well and you wouldn't... Yeah, uh, and you're describing there again an, an effective uh, cohort that's working together, but shared purpose, shared vision. So I would think, you know, thinking about the workplace, uh, it, it's hard to imagine an environment where too many leaders is can ever be a bad thing, providing you're all absolutely on the same page. So that vision is set. You've got strong purpose and values. You understand what your values mean. We've talked about that in previous podcasts about um, it can't just be words. It's actually got to be those actionable verbs underpinning your your values. So those behavioral competencies. And I think if every leader can understand those fully, then it's a great thing to have lots of people that can lead um, and drive the organization forward. And you mentioned there about Clive Woodward and his style of leadership. Um, and he was very famous for sort of incremental gains, which we yeah. hear about now in the workplace. Yeah. Um, people looking for those those small changes, marginal changes that will, will create an impact. What is it, do you think, that made him so successful, Sir Clive Woodward? Uh, because he also then tried to apply it at Southampton Football Club mm. to less success. So was it that there was an environment that embraced what he was trying to do and he almost had a clean slate with that, that setup that football perhaps wouldn't tolerate or embrace? Uh, and what is it that you think made him so successful in that, that rugby um, genre? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I mean, I haven't done any detailed analysis of my own or, or, or even read any research about those parallels between rugby and football. I think we can all instantly see that there are differences. There's a there's a, a, a different culture in rugby that probably lends itself more to that democratic style of leadership we spoke about. Football doesn't. Um, and we know that historically um, you get more autocratic leaders and that's just that culture within the sport. I mean, let's talk about that for a moment. You know, we, we understand those those leadership styles. Um, you know, Lewin, Lippitt and White set these way back in the 30s. We've got our autocratic leaders, our democratic leaders and our, and our laissez-faire leaders. So that autocratic style is probably what we see more in football. You know, making the decisions, motivated to complete tasks as quickly as possible. Um but typically your autocratic leader doesn't really take into account the opinions or the preferences of the group. They're just so driven on the task. They probably uh, won't delegate responsibility, but they focus on, on group performance and, and, and achievement. And I think in the football world, you, I bet you're instantly thinking of coaches and managers right now. Yeah. Yeah. Who yeah, do you think? Alex Ferguson. Absolutely right. Yeah. Alex Ferguson is the person that meets that mould. To the point that I don't think you could have Alex Ferguson now. Football clubs are too big. Yeah. Um, you know, there's too much to take on. Yeah, but interestingly, an autocratic leader can also be, it's not a negative, because it can be very effective when you need quick decisions for large groups. Um, but also in those early cognitive stages of learning. So if you think back to that famous class of 92, that 
incredible group of young players that Manchester United inherited, that lended itself beautifully to Ferguson's autocratic style. They needed shaping. They needed those those cognitive um, uh, um, behaviours um, forming. And in turn, they became a ruthless winning machine. Um, Brian Clough, Jose Mourinho, these are other managers that have that autocratic style. Clive Woodward, um, much more democratic, uh, very famously. Um, Ted Lasso, you know, <laughs> amazing, amazing coach. Much more about sharing decisions, sharing delegation, uh, believing in consultation and developing those meaningful interpersonal relationships. Um, we don't want to get too stereotypical, but but that instantly feels much more rugby-like than football-like. Yeah. And that's possibly why it worked for him in the England setup. I don't know. I haven't done the research. Um, but clearly it was hugely successful and a managerial style that lent itself very well. Um, other people throughout... You know, Nelson Mandela famously had a very democratic style. Tim Cook at Apple. So it can be hugely effective. Um, and, it, and it's very clearly proven to be very good and then you're your, your more laissez-faire styles where the leader will stand aside um allow the group to make their own independent decisions um that style can tend to happen automatically um but you can then very quickly find that you get loss of direction in the group if, if that's applied it's, it's not really that common and you might struggle to think of examples where that happened but but i can think of one example where it's happening in a microcosm rather than a greater I'm afraid I'll go back to my uh, my original uh, example of Arsene Wenger. Famously, never went anywhere near the change room at halftime. Yeah. Always knew he didn't need to because he'd let the players work it out for themselves. The players knew long before the match kicked off what was expected of them. That had already been coached and discussed. Um, and if they were performing badly, he'd just leave them to it and they would sort it out themselves, probably in a more confrontational and aggressive way than he would. Um, and then for those last three minutes, he'd go into the changing room, ensure that the direction was agreed uh, and, then, and then the team go out with their purpose. But that's not going to work in a, in a constantly evolving way, um, which is why we see those democratic styles as generally being thought to be the most effective style um, too much autocratic, autocratic rather can lead to uh, players finding that they lose connection with the coach. We see this repeatedly with coaches like Jose Mourinho. Frequently, we read in the press about he's lost the changing room. It's just that style doesn't lend itself. It's not nurturing the talent. And I think you mentioned him a minute ago, and I say it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and I know it is um, fictional, but the Ted Lasso approach. Yes. You know, he sort of isn't an expert in his field and is happy to sort of delegate decision-making to the changing room. Um, for those that have seen the programme, um, you know, there are many people that, and that causes friction within players and yeah. allows sort of gaps to, to fill and then people to fill voids. So, uh, it's not a documentary. <laughs> well, I, I, it's not the all or nothing of... Uh, <laughs> oh, I thought it was... <laughs> no, because the most successful coaches and the most successful leaders in businesses understand how to use all three styles. And of course, they're not limited to those three styles. We just talk about those because it's a reasonably well understood model. Human behaviour is far more complex than that. Um, but you switch from one to the other depending on the situational need that you're confronted with. And the very best leaders, the very best sports coaches understand that. And, and yes, you know, we're talking about a fictional character in Ted Lasso, but actually, you know, for those people that love the show, if you watch the character, there are times where 
he's actually far more focused and professional than you're led to believe because the the success of the team is paramount um, and actually if tough decisions are there to be made he'll make them uh, and that's what all great leaders can do yeah um, and I want to circle back around some names that I mentioned earlier um, that cohort of midfielders from the mid 2000s Gerard Lampard Vieira Keane all of them like probably four of the most successful and best footballers of their generation all captains all leaders none of whom have been able to translate that success that they had as players into managers. And I often think about this, and I often think, is it a question of, and I think it with Roy Keane in particular, now I may be miles off, one of those sort of things that you would expect of a leader is that they set the values and they set the standards. And would somebody, do you think, struggle coming out of being a world-class elite footballer who has their own standards and own values of what they expect to then being put into uh, clubs where you haven't got players that can perform. And again, take it to the workplace. If you are an exceptional uh, individual who's great at their job but gets promoted into a managerial position, you expect people to have your same drive, standards, Mm. values. And if they don't, do you then struggle to perhaps um empathize with their position and be able to put yourself in that through that lens of seeing where they are and therefore struggle to build the team dynamic and build ultimately to results and success yeah uh, it's a great question and 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 you know we can't get ourselves inside the the head of these players and and yet I'm not sure we, I wish to with Roy Keane, well, if I'm honest <laughs> maybe not but but we see time and time again that that the you know, great great captains, leaders on the pitch, great players don't always translate to being great managers. So there's clearly something else at play. Um, as you were asking the question, you know, I'm, I'm thinking there about things like uh, the work we do um, around the research of people like Dan Pink, looking at what is it that motivates us? Is it satisfaction of the uh, the performance on the pitch or are we motivated by success? So that play of is it trophies or or uh, um, other personal success that matters most and I think we're talking about players here who were clearly driven their desire um, was all about the purpose using damn pink language and perhaps not necessarily the mastery of what they're up to whereas you know in the modern world Harry Kane you, you'd probably argue that it's the the desire for personal success and and, and uh, stats that overrides his burning desire for either money or trophies, and perhaps that that intrinsic motivation that they have as players, and you've talked there about four players who are clearly absolutely driven. I mean, they would drag their teams to a winning position from a hopeless situation on on frequent basis take charge of the situation and maybe that drive on the pitch is not the same drive that's needed in the in the managerial sphere where we discussed earlier it's much more about building relationships it's much more about translating that drive and goal but across a range of players of differing abilities as you described we're now talking about human behavior and nuances um, I don't know these guys personally that you've discussed, but perhaps they just don't have those nuances that are needed to navigate a wide range of different personalities, attributes and skills. Yeah. Um, and before we wrap up, one thing I wanted to touch on was I was at a client uh, piece this week, which you know about. I won't go into who the client was, but it was a really interesting uh, question that was posed. Was somebody was saying, it's a large organisation, they were saying within our department, we um, have our own set of sort of values and 
um, we have our competencies that we're all sort of working towards. But the organisation has its own values and the two aren't necessarily completely aligned, although um, although on the whole they are. They're saying, you know, we have our organisational ones at the top level and then as a department we have slightly different drivers. And um, somebody from very high up within the organisation was there and she said, we've had this conversation. And to bring it back to a sporting context, uh, and I love the phrase, she said... Um, We've been discussing this at a high level and we see it as being available for both club and country. Um, and so your club being your departmental areas that you're focusing on and your brilliance that you create within your, your club that. level and your country being the organisational uh, goals and aspirations and the work that you're doing is driving both. Um, but you're there for club and country. And I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant piece. Yeah, good analogy. Uh, and of course, we see those dichotomies playing out in the in the uh, sporting arena, whether it's football or, or otherwise. Um, you know, one of my other passions, as you know, uh, alongside football, completely different is, is road cycling. Uh, because the, the, st the strategies that are playing out constantly are, are hugely fascinating to me. You know, there's always races within races. And you often there will see an individual sacrifice their own personal gain for the benefit of the wider team. Um, their team leader, you know, next weekend the Tour de France starts, you know, the, the, the team leader will generally be focused on trying to win the entire race. Well, that requires a whole multitude of different attributes. You have to be able to ride quickly in time trials on an individual challenge. You need to be able to go up mountains. And it's remarkable how quickly those guys can do that. So the, the, the individual glory of a team member, um, they may be able to win a particular stage, which is a huge professional um, achievement for them, but they will regularly sacrifice that for the greater good. And so it's kind of that same club versus country analogy. And it's fascinating seeing those things playing out. Uh, I, I I don't really have anything else to say to the to the question. It's just it's just interesting, isn't it? And it, yeah. and it's it's just you know more of those interesting facets of human behaviour. And um, perhaps that's another example where we could you know invite people to comment on what they see and how that plays out in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. So I just found it really interesting. You can be driven to achieve both, yes. even if they're slightly you know not a hundred percent aligned. Um, yes, one can feed the other. Well, I think you can still have overarching goals that are still the same the same direction of travel. How you get there can sometimes vary, um, but ultimately, as long as you're still heading towards the same destination, which in you know in in companies is that long term strategic goal, then it can't be a bad thing that you may deviate from the path temporarily. Um, as long as you don't lose sight and completely go off on a tangent. Yeah. Right. Well, we shall wrap it up there, Alex. Thank you very, very much for recording. Uh, as ever, we'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you'd like to get involved, please do drop us a note. We'll be pushing this out on uh, LinkedIn and all the other channels. So thank you very much for your time in listening to Unlocking Your Potential from Ask Europe. We wish you well. Enjoy the summer. and We'll catch up soon.